Hello, and welcome to A Fresh Take, an investment week podcast where we speak to people from all walks of life about how they see the asset management sector. I'm Kathleen Gallagher, Features Editor at Investment Week, and I'm joined by four guests who represent the next generation of investment professionals. They will share their thoughts on the world of investment, and this week we'll focus on the future of sustainability and ESG. I'm joined by Anna Mercer, Responsible Investment Analysis at Square Mile, Alex Monk, who runs the Global Energy Transition Fund for Schroeders, Bethan Dixon, Portfolio Manager at Coulter Investors, and Michaela Crisp, who is Head of Growth at Wombat Investing. Welcome, everyone. So to start off, do you want to tell us a bit about yourselves? Anna, do you mind kicking off for us? Yeah, sure. Um, So my route into the asset management industry didn't follow the currently quite typical path of a degree in economics or finance, kind of leading to a grad scheme in the city. Instead, I did a joint honours degree in history and Italian. And then following graduation, I spent some time volunteering at a hospice for the terminally ill. I then started temping at a financial media group because I realized that you definitely need a job to pay the bills. (laughs) And um, so I was within their events events division. And it was at this time in 2018 that the current movement towards ESG and responsible investment really began to gain momentum, sorry, um, which had a very kind of strong resonance resonance with my personal outlook on life. And to be honest, I was really hooked from there. Um, so soon after this, I applied for a position at Square Mile, uh, Research and was offered a role within the research team. Initially, I covered UK and Japanese equities with some fixed income analysis thrown in. But my focus now is very much on responsible investment, which is really where my passion lies. Um, I was involved in the development of Square Mile's ESG integration assessments and the responsible ratings. And then following the acquisition of 3D investing last year, I'm now principally focused on researching and awarding ratings to responsible investment funds, as well as communicating with our clients to hopefully offer them some informed research, which they can in turn use with their own clients. Oh, wow. Very cool. Um, Bethan, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself as well? I joined the industry following studying physics and chemistry at university. My first role was in investor relations at Lloyd's Banking Group, where I was exposed to and gained an understanding of the asset management industry. I then joined Perford International as an equity analyst on the Asian desk, where I covered emerging and developed markets. As part of the fundamental company analysis, I analysed the key ESG issues facing companies and engaged directly with C-suite executives on these issues. I then joined Decorator Investors, where I support the running of the multi-asset risk-targeted portfolios. I'm also using my prior experience as an equity analyst and that direct experience in ESG to support my role as an investment lead on responsible investment at Decorator Investors. Very cool. Um, Michaela? Yeah, sure. Um, So I came into the industry with uh, an economics degree, um, but kind of like graduated um in like 2012 so it was a particularly bad year for like grad jobs and stuff like that so I was actually given an opportunity to start contracting um at RBS through it was just sort of through my network so then since then I've kind of like grown my career really just through like who I know um joined a couple of like top tier investment banks and then started my career at Accenture working for working in financial services, but management consulting um, as the main arm. Um, Since then, um, a bit of a like more interesting journey, I guess I sort of decided to take a career break 
of which started traveling, but then had met Kane maybe 10 years or so ago. And he sort of said, you know, do you want to help me out? I've got this thing that I want to grow. I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, and I think for both of us, we were not so much from an ESG perspective, but we'd been through the frustrations and some of the sort of like traditional investing roots ourselves and wanted to start breaking down those barriers so that's kind of how Wombat was born um I did sort of start helping him out while I was traveling and I'm continuing to travel now um as Wombat's head of growth so cool and do you mind um telling our listeners a bit about Wombat in case they haven't come across them yet yeah sure so Wombat is a fractional investing platform um really with a few purposes of um, breaking down investment barriers so we're providing the how with an easy to use platform and then really touching on the what and the why with um, fractional shares and themed funds and with the why it's really about creating that connection with millennials and gen z individuals looking for investing options but not really knowing you know where to start for example so everyone can invest with as little as £10 um, and yeah, choose, choose a wide range of fractional shares in the UK, US and EU, as well as some pretty cool funds, basically. But we, we, <laughs> we brand them as themes, so they're completely different to what you see sort of described on the stock market, for example. We just completely rename them. Cool. Very cool. Um, and Alex? So I did uh, the, I guess, unconventional financial degree of geography, um, where I learned uh, sort of lots about um, the world's problems and, and some of the solutions, um, but sort of in a, a fascinating way, but not overly sort of uh, applied way. Um, had always had an interest in finance uh, and actually ended up spending a bit of time trying to join the dots between geography and finance and kind of led me through into sort of environmental finance and environmental policy and, and how I guess capital markets play a really important role in solving some of the world's great problems um, and, and sort of through that um, was, was very lucky to be taken on um, by Schroders as part of their sustainable investment team um, spent two years there um, sort of learning uh, a huge amount about ESG sustainability and sort of the way to apply uh, probably a different way of thinking about finance um, to sort of investments and portfolios um, and then since then um, have been working helping to manage uh, our global energy transition strategy um, at Schroders which has been um, super exciting uh, again one of those sort of solutions and problems um, that the geography had taught me a lot about and it, it, it's really um, cool to be able to be investing in companies that are helping to sort of solve um, solve some of those problems. Brilliant and very topical at the moment, um, the energy transition. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, so I guess to kick things off, ESG has become a big part of the asset management industry. Um, do you think that's helped its reputation or are there concerns of greenwashing kind of hindering that help? Uh, Bethan, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, firstly, ESG investing is not new and fundamentally a good fund manager should be considering the broad set of risk and opportunities facing companies they invest in. ESG has, however, become increasingly a formal and key part of the investment process. And while historically there was a large focus on the G, governance, increasingly investors want to understand the sophistication of the approach to assessing the E and the S, the environmental and social factors. 
greenwashing is definitely a key concern among investors. At Quilter, we found for 44% of investors, investments not being what they claim to be was their biggest concern when looking to invest in this space. The ESG investment universe is rapidly expanding and there are a range of approaches from integration to ethical and sustainable. However, there's little consistency in the investment approach behind these fund labels. At Quilter Investors, we understand the challenges of greenwashing, particularly as one of our key roles as a fund selector. We have developed an ESG fund assessment process, which looks beyond the fund name, seeks to understand what the fund is trying to achieve and looks for evidence of this by analyzing the underlying investments. We also look at the firm and assess how committed they are to a responsible investment. We however, we have found that there are some great ESG funds out there being managed by very experienced and skilled individuals. You just have to look beyond the fund name and do your homework. Lastly, greenwashing is very much on the mind of regulators. So fund managers need to be much more aware and ensure they are investing in the way they say they will. Cool. Anna, what about you? Does greenwashing take up much of your day-to-day -day kind of analysis when you're looking at firms and funds? Unfortunately, it definitely does. <laughs> so like um, Bethan, I think many kind of asset managers will argue that ESG considerations have always been an input for them when considering an investment. But I think it's also probably fair to say that there's now a much greater emphasis on these elements, or at least more of a conversation around them. And I think one thing we're seeing in particular is that the bigger or more powerful change has probably come in that form of the responsible investment outcome outcomes or aims that kind of increasing numbers of fund managers are seeking to achieve so if we consider that myriad of fund launches that actively are kind of aiming to do good avoid doing harm or lead change and i think that does reflect the kind of growing awareness in society of the individual and collective need to do more to kind of tackle those larger issues However, as, as we all know, and as we're discussing, the greenwashing and the claiming that they're doing is also becoming quite a big issue. So I think it's one of the ways that, you know, we really need to talk about. And I think it's something that investors, investors, sorry, the fund management group can kind of do a lot to build upon and show itself as a positive force. However, in order to do that authentically and probably to kind of minimize and hopefully eliminate that issue of greenwashing, I'd say that fund managers have to be cognizant of several things. Uh, firstly, they have to really articulate clearly what their responsible investment objectives are. And that's a conversation we're always having with groups and the fund managers that we speak to. Um, and, you know, as Bethan's touched on, many of us are aware that the language currently being used to describe responsible investing is varied and so often very confusing. So I'd say that clear communications are really essential to enable investors to identify the funds that kind of fit their personal outlooks. And then there's the other idea of evidencing what they're actually doing. So they need to demonstrate transparency and authenticity in that, you know, they're delivering on their promises using tangible and standardized metrics. And if they achieve that, hopefully green concerns around that greenwashing should be minimized. And I'd say, as you know, Bethan's also said, it's really important that companies themselves are embracing those ESG factors that they're kind of holding others to account so that they need to become responsible kind of corporate citizens and make sure that their overall corporate culture falls in line with that and I think that will help also to avoid greenwashing because if they're setting their own standards and adhering to them then purely you know by default hopefully the messaging that goes out will be kind of authentic and accurate as well. And do you think it's kind of um, the universe and 
the way fund managers look at ESG has evolved over the past number of years or however long you've been working on it? Have you seen a lot of change or? Uh, definitely. I think, as I said, there's a lot more conversation now moving from ESG towards that kind of idea of delivering impact or kind of positive solutions. I think, are we all speaking the same language as to what that means? Probably no. And therefore, is it becoming a bit confusing as to what we're trying to get to? Yes, but I think, yeah, definitely, we're no longer kind of looking at it just as an input into analysis. Obviously, that's very useful from like a risk mitigation tool and opportunity perspective. But it, I think it is that now we're much more moving towards the idea of intentionality and actually kind of using investments as a force for good and helping kind of to affect positive change. And I think as we've seen with the widespread adoption of frameworks like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that is something that's just going to continue to build and that momentum is going to continue to grow in that space. So I think we'll move up kind of further up that spectrum of capital and away from kind of more risk mitigation and opportunity towards that impact end of the spectrum. Gotcha. And Alex, so your fund very much sits within that kind of doing good um, category. How do you kind of approach those greenwashing concerns and what's your approach really? Yeah, so I think the issue of greenwashing is is really important. And certainly as we're seeing this sort of proliferation of funds focused on this space, actually making sure that fund managers are doing what they're saying on the tin, um, I think is going to become more and more important. And I guess, you know, I, I think generally the financial community is waking up to this, regulators are waking up to this, and we're, we're seeing lots more for it. I guess in terms of how, how we try and think about it as much as possible, um, we try and be as transparent as possible um, with our end investors. So, you know, we uh, produce a sustainability report every quarter where we try and report on as many different metrics and kind of views of sustainability as possible uh, and actually in our recent um, Schroeder's global investor um, survey you know 40% of people said that they'd be more willing to invest sustainability with that reporting kind of more transparent more in place which kind of touches on what Bethan and, uh, and Anna were saying there. I think what's really important as well, and certainly how we think about it, is that it's not just about what companies are doing, but also how they're doing it. And that differentiation, I think, is really important, uh, kind of the, the mix between kind of thematic solutions and then sort of broader ESG and sustainability in terms of company profiles. And I think making sure that you're reporting on both of those things so that you don't end up with greenwashing or sustainability washing or theme washing, which I suppose is becoming more and more, more prominent, actually making sure companies are doing what they're saying on the tin and then as, as as was mentioned um, um, by Anna and Bethan, really reporting on outcomes as much as possible. Um, and, and that transparency, I think, is super important. Um, you know, ultimately, that's what this is about. Um, investors will always make their own choices in terms of, you know, where they want to invest and sort of the values that they want to align with. But what we can do as fund managers, as well as integrating broader kind of sustainability uh, characteristics in our analysis to understand which companies can outperform potentially over the longer term, really being transparent with what we're investing in and why and the kind of solutions and, and uh, you know, capabilities that companies are kind of having end, um, you know, results for become super important. So I think it's really all about transparency. And, and certainly we try and do that as much as possible here. Absolutely. And I guess when, so there's obviously the fun level and being concerned about greenwashing there. Do you think there's any concern about maybe CEOs overselling what their companies are doing? Or when you're looking at companies, are you, how do you test that what they're saying or their intentions are actually valid? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And, and certainly we rely as much as possible on data. Um, you know, we have a brilliant uh, data insights unit here um, who do a load of work. We have a, a, a dedicated team sort of producing sustainability tools, which is amazing from our perspective. And again, 
kind of looking deeply into financial reports uh, and sort of reading some of the, the literature that gets put out by companies and some of the reporting that they do, I think is going to become more and more important as well. I think it's no longer enough to simply say that you're doing something. Um, you know, if it's not actually playing out in the data, um, that's important uh, um, and will make a difference. And I think certainly something that we're focused on more and more is making sure that, you know, when CEOs come out with commitments, whether that be to reduce emissions or improve gender diversity or, or, or any other kind of sort of sustainability outcome, making sure that's linked to remuneration and pay um, is becoming more and more of our focus as well. You know, ultimately, we want to be able to hold management to account. Um, and so I think, you know, it's similar to probably how in the, the asset management industry saying is no longer enough, you actually need to evidence outcomes and, and sort of prove uh, that the proof is in the pudding, if that sort of makes sense. I think that's becoming more important. And certainly we're, we're something we're very focused on when looking at individual companies. Gotcha. Cool. And Michaela, from your perspective, um, obviously Wombat is, is opening up kind of investing to people who maybe haven't had access before. Do you think kind of ESG and greenwashing is something that's on their mind or not really at this point? Yeah, I think we've, you know, there's there's clear evidence that um, being able to invest with a, you know, with a positive um, impact on the side is definitely one of the key trends that we're seeing. Um, we're already kind of um, gearing up for that with a few of the themes that we have on offer on the platform. So we have the Green Machine and Women in Power, for example, where it's more focused on a fund where the companies have got like a greater influence on gender equality and some of their sort of like gender related um, policies and things like that. Um, with the, the greenwashing concern and sort of touching on what Alex and Anna said, um, I think the fear of greenwashing is, is starting to sort of dissipate. I think there are, you know, definitely some of my friends, I've got a friend with a startup Silvera, <laughs> Um, and they're looking at carbon footprinting and, you know, making that data publicly available. I think that will give like the public access to um, the true exposure of the impact of those companies. And they sit under, you know, in the underlying funds. I think there's still a long way to go. Um, but movements like this will like, continue to push in the right direction and make more companies accountable for their actions. Um, and I think more and more we'll see the benefits being realized. Um, but yeah, for sure, from a, from a younger, more millennial and individual investor standpoint, um, we are looking for investment options that, that give us that you know, greater impact on the world aspect as well. Brilliant. Anna, what about you? Do you think it's very important to the next generation or? They're, you just need to get them into investing first, so not yet. <laughs> well, I think definitely it's, you know, it's very fair to say that younger generations have, you know, very strong views about the kind of impact that they can and are having on the world and are very aware of their personal responsibility in tackling those issues such as climate change. And, you know, we're seeing that engagement through their behaviour, whether that's them being more conscious about recycling or, you know, reduce their meat intake or having a much greater sense of social justice when it comes to kind of, you know, going out and protesting certain issues. And I think it's fair to say that those principles are likely to be reflected in the kinds of funds that they will choose to invest in. And so no doubt that, you know, responsible investment will have a strong residence. However, for many, I think a lack of financial education or literacy means that they're actually simply not really aware of investment as an option. 
And in addition, there's probably, you know, that issue of having more urgent priorities for their money. So that kind of greater democratization of investment, as Michaela's touched on, is probably required if we are really to encourage that participation in markets from that younger generation. Um, but, you know, I also think it's not really necessarily the reserve of the younger investors. And we at Scrum, I'll probably think it, you know, really cuts across generations from parents investing for their children through, you know, drivers or to kind of grandparents who want the legacy of their investments to be a safer, cleaner and probably more just world for future generations. And so especially now that also that myth that you have to sacrifice performance by investing responsibly has been dispelled. I think RI has become even more compelling to a very broad spectrum of investors. So in a long rambling answer, to cut to a short one, yes, I do think it will get kind of new, new investors involved, but actually we as an industry probably have more of a responsibility as part of this to make sure that those younger generations come through, actually understand and have access to investment and responsible investment as a whole, and they know what it means and they, they have the power and the kind of autonomy to be able to decide to do what they wish for their money and invest hopefully to affect positive change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't really even know where to start with investing, I'm sure the, the last thing on your mind is how to invest for a better world. Um, Bethan, what do you think? Does financial education play a big role here? I think it definitely does. And I think um, one of the challenges with investing in the ESG space is that it's really hard for you know all investors, including the younger generation, to compare the the sort of credential of one ESG fund to another. And you know that's one of the biggest challenges that the industry has is that you've got you know low correlation of sort of ESG data sets. Um, some sort of really innovative things Quilter are doing is, you know, our advisors now have to, you know, formally ask clients about their ESG preferences. And we have a range of, of different um, client profiles from, a, from an age perspective. So that's really helping these sort of clients understand these types of investments and also seek to align their investment um, portfolios with their sort of ESG beliefs. Perfect. And Alex, I guess a real life example of kind of um, your day-to-day -day life being impacted by, by something that a fund could potentially help with is, is the kind of energy transition. Um, have you been getting quite a lot of questions, particularly given the, the kind of latest gas crisis? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's a, it's a really exciting space to be in. Um, you know, ultimately, depending on how you look at things, the energy system is 40 to 70% of all our emissions globally. So, uh, you know, fixing that alongside our food and water system, alongside our, you know, recycling and kind of broader things is a, is a super exciting place to be. Uh, I think at the moment, we've obviously seen, you know, lots of uh, supply chain disruptions because of the pandemic. Um, and I think actually it's really interesting that the, you know, we spoke about sort of the differentiation of, of um, sort of generations, but actually I think the pandemic has really sort of thrust some of these sustainability problems that the world has, you know, into the light. Uh, you know, it's sort of become very aware that um, there's a need to solve some of these problems. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, yes, you know, the pandemic has caused some of the, the higher energy prices that, that we're seeing today, but there's also been, you know, extreme weather events that have taken out um, some of sort of the critical uh, energy hubs and energy producing points. Um, so kind of the idea that extreme weather is getting more and more um, severe and more common, and that's going to keep causing these some of, some of these supply chain disruptions that we're seeing, I, I think is really relevant as well. So, you know, I think 
the importance of these issues uh, are coming to light. I think younger generations potentially are more aware. Um, but as was sort of mentioned um, um, by, by Anna, Bethan and Michaela, it's, it's not just young people. I think, you know, we've found certainly again in our, our latest Schroeder's, uh, you know, uh, global investor study that 90% of people are kind of, um, you know, or more interested in this type of thing don't think it's got worse and 55 and 57 percent of people um kind of putting more and more importance on environmental and social issues because of the pandemic as well and i think again changing regulations and some of the policy support that we've seen around this uh, has been super exciting so yeah, certainly i know I, i'm very lucky to work in uh, a space which is you know very dynamic and as i say um right at sort of the forefront of some of the issues as well Perfect. Well, a very evolving debate, it seems. Well, thank you guys all so much for your time this afternoon. So to mark the launch of our new series, I'm thrilled to be joined by Karis Stander, Managing Director of the Diversity Initiative Investment 2020. Welcome, Karis. Hello, Kathleen. Thanks so much for taking the time today. You're most welcome. And thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, so first off, it'd be great if you could tell us all a bit more about Investment 2020 and what the overall approach and aims are of it. So Investment 2020 is about driving a, a forward thinking, a responsible and an inclusive investment industry. And one that attracts young people, develops them and also retains them. And young people from a diversity of, of different backgrounds. And we're about providing opportunities for young people who hadn't previously considered a career in the investment industry because they didn't know about us or, or have connections and, and networks. And, and we see diversifying our talent pool uh, as really as an industry priority, because if we don't address this as young people start their careers, we will struggle to achieve this at a, at a more senior level within the foreseeable future. And, and, you know, Kathleen, our, our approach that we take is about collectively working together as an industry because addressing this agenda and achieving success as, a, as an individual firm can be a very difficult thing to do. But when we um, stand together collectively as an industry with one industry voice, we can be very effective in driving change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a fresh take is all about trying to, to be a platform to, to hear some views from some other people. So obviously hiring people is a very important part of the diversity problem, but how imperative do you think it is to hear views from some of the younger people and people from different backgrounds joining the industry? You know, it, it's critical that we listen to the views of, of young people join, joining the industry because these people will be our future leaders. They'll be our future managers and, and, and they will shift the culture and they will drive the culture of tomorrow. And we need to listen to them and, and listen to understand them because this is our future. And you know, for, for our trainees, so the young people who are starting out their, their careers, they could be graduates, they could be school and college leavers. And, and we speak to them um, quite a lot. And we have in fact, what we call a, a trainee committee and they give us insights into how they're feeling, you know, from a cultural perspective, but also insights in terms of where they see the industry going and, and about their career, um, career trajectory and how they see themselves in being able to future-proof themselves for the, for the jobs of tomorrow, which aren't necessary here today, but they can see how the industry is starting to morph. And, and you know, um, 
certainly they've, they've been sharing with us and we've been found it uh, most enlightening listening to their views on what it's been like working from home during the pandemic mm -hmm. and their thoughts on coming back into the office now that offices are starting to open up and, and culturally, where are they? And, and, and what we're starting to see is that they, they want to have conversations. They want to be listened to and, and they, want to, they want to have influence. And I think that is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously, you know, no matter where you are within the industry in terms of your seniority, you're still working in it. And so um, you'll have views, particularly when it comes to your own working practices and working from home from, to working in an office. Um, and how do and you also, think? Yeah, and, go ahead. And also, if I can share with you, when we're talking about young people, we, I, I was talking about young people joining the industry as they start their careers. But we also, of course, speak to young people all the time who are still deciding about their future careers. So just this year alone, since January, we've run over 200 careers events for, for students at university, as well as um, school and college. And, and the message that we get from them is still that they lack of awareness and understanding about our industry, and that they are surprised to hear and to learn um, about our industry and its relevance to wider society that is beyond investments. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of um, it's great from multiple multiple perspectives that to learn about the investment industry because even if they decide not to take a career into it, understanding a bit more about how the world of investment works could definitely help them with their own money, maybe future down the line. Yes, um, exactly. And they're going to be clients of ours either way. Well, we certainly hope that they will be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those events sound very interesting. So how do you think the kind of next generation of investment professionals can change the shape of our industry? Do you think they have quite a few ideas in mind of how they'd like things to work? Well, generation um, was to say, let me start again. <laughs> Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z have very different aspirations to older generations. And certainly when it comes to their own careers and the culture they want to drive. You know, and for example, gender equality is a much bigger theme. And this is not only in the policies that they want to see, but, but also in how they live their lives, the role that men and women play in society. And this includes the expectation from both men and women to parent equally and challenging the assumption that mums alone are the main caregivers. And men want that option too. And they want the option to decide what role they want to play. And this should ultimately drive a more balanced and a more inclusive culture. And, and this should mean, and, and hopefully it will mean, better gender representation across the business. Yeah. I, I also think when we look at um, the next generation, they want to see more sustainability within investments. And this is across organizations. So this is not just within the investment piece itself, but also across the organizations. And whether it's from preserving the earth through to doing the right thing for people. And it's, it's hard to say exactly how this is going to manifest itself. But if we look at the incredible rate of change that is happening right now, it is likely to be extensive and really quite exciting. And, and I feel that if we're talking about the next generation, it, I wouldn't be doing justice if I didn't mention something here when it comes to digital data and technology. And I think we are undoubtedly going to be seeing huge developments within this space. 
because of course gen um gen y and gen z they are all digital natives and they are already bringing these incredible skills and much needed skills to our businesses and the way that businesses engage with customers understand their customers and also understand who is not their customer i think we're going to see some incredible innovation in in this space and and huge efficiencies which is really very exciting yeah absolutely do you mind explaining what digital natives are i don't think i've come across that term before <laughs> well a digital native is somebody who has grown up not knowing simply put the iphone so they do not recall at any point not having a computer in their hand and being able to navigate their way around it. So for somebody like myself, I remember the internet. So I'm revealing my age here, but I remember when the internet came about. In fact, I remember when people were talking about this new thing called the internet and I thought, oh, it sounds, you know, nonsense. I mean, are we ever going to need it? You know, and then the phone came around and that was a huge, it was a briefcase. And, um, and now, I mean, who would have imagined that you would have a computer and in some cases actually um, much more powerful than your, your PC at home that you can hold in your hand or put in your pocket. And when you have a group of young people who are brought, born, into, um, born into an environment, a generation of people who do not know what it means not to have this, they think and speak and understand the language of technology, of data, of everything digital in a way that my generation simply does not, because I've had to learn it like I would a foreign language. Yeah, that's super interesting. I had never thought about it that way, but obviously they, they don't know a paper and pen time, really. Well, you know, as one of my colleagues said to me as I was struggling with something at work, and he just said to me simply, go and find somebody under 25 and they'll be able to solve it. <laughs> So I thought that that neatly summed it up. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, so we've talked about some of the challenges the industry faces, and obviously one that um, Investment 2020 is clearly trying to tackle is diversity inclusion. Um, and how can we look to overcome some of those challenges as we move forward? So there are a number of challenges facing our industry when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And I would say our industry has got significantly better when it comes to having the discussion, being comfortable talking about where the problems are and different people's lived experiences. And there have been some great strides made in bringing people into the discussion who perhaps felt that they couldn't participate and that the discussion wasn't about them or benefiting them. And while talking about where the issues are and recognizing what they look like has been so important, we do need to move the discussion into action and tangible action that delivers results. And, and this comes down to a genuine commitment from all people, from all, all managers to challenge their hiring practices, because if they don't make changes to, to what they do, the chances are they're not going to get a different outcome from what they had before. And also for, for all managers to play a very active role in the development and progression of their team. And, um, and Kathleen, I've got, you know, I've been thinking about this, there, there are quite a number of challenges. So stop me, you know, as I, as, as, as I talk, but um, if you want to delve further into some of them, but I think, um, while the industry has made progress in many areas, 
Um, diversity and inclusion must be across the full business, which includes the investment teams and the distribution teams and roles that have traditionally been seen as more, um, in, uh, more exclusive. So what we typically call the front office. And there's been greater movement across other areas of the business. And we simply can't afford for investments in distribution to slip behind, especially when we consider how many of today's senior leaders and CEOs have started their careers within these areas. And, and to make change, there has to be a genuine desire, but, but crucially to make the change, but um, crucially the recruitment process and what we call the, the recruitment infrastructure and development landscape has to make change as well. And, and meaningful change happens when every hiring manager truly buys into the value of diverse and inclusive recruitment. And, and this means looking for the, the cultural ad rather than the cultural fit and challenging assumptions about the knowledge and the skills and the experiences that are required for these roles. So I think there's a big job to do there. Yeah, absolutely. So you've talked about some of the kind of areas of the industry that are a bit further behind um, on diversity and inclusion? Which areas do you think are maybe slightly further along in their journey and why do you think that is? So some of the areas, for example, in, in operations, um, I think are slightly further along where I think that the hiring managers, managers themselves have potentially come from much broader backgrounds. They, some of them started out their careers where they, they didn't go to university, so they're school and college leavers, or if they went to university, didn't necessarily go to um, some of the more exclusive universities. And because of this, they are more attuned to being able to hire um, looking at talent in a, in a broader way because they can identify and understand that actually good talent um, come from many different backgrounds and many different areas. And I think that people have felt more comfortable taking risks in these areas and realizing actually the risk is paid off. It's not a risk. It's a, it's a great business move. So, so I think they've naturally, some of these areas have naturally lent themselves in that way. You know, and if we look at finance, you know, finance areas are typically you can start your career from, from school and college, and you can start by taking the AAT qualification and go all the way up to being a chartered accountant. And there's a very clear progression pathway, and it doesn't matter where you start that journey. And I don't think that we have the same history and legacy in all areas of investment management businesses so that people can see they can do that and that hiring managers feel that um, they're comfortable doing that. No, that makes sense. And obviously it, it is challenging for managers, isn't it, um, to kind of take on someone who potentially comes from a different background or a different viewpoint. Um, do you have any kind of tips for, for people that might be a little bit nervous about taking that kind of step? Well, I, I would say, um, you know, if we're really serious about making a change, um, by far the most effective way of doing this is providing, uh, providing entry jobs and accessible entry jobs and entry jobs that allow people to grow and to develop into the job rather than the expectation that they hit the ground running. And that is where the beauty of the Investment 2020 12-month training program comes in, because it does take the risk away 
or perceived risk away from the business and from the hiring manager because it is a one-year program and it is with the intention that the trainee is offered a permanent position at the end of it because you want them to stay and you want to develop them and you want them to be a permanent part of the team. But equally, there isn't the obligation to do that if it doesn't work out. So I think that structure does really help in terms of addressing any perceived risks that, that hiring managers have. And, um, and um, that then allows them to be able to recruit in a different kind of way. That then allows them to start to, to think differently in terms of what are they assessing for? What is absolutely essential for the role? And I would encourage all managers to do this. But do they have to have everything? And the longer your list is, the more people you exclude. So I think that's a really good starting point. And if I can also say, when I, when I look at the benefit of, of, of looking at a 12-month program, and there is a huge conversion rate because we have of the 2,000 plus young people who've started their career through investment 2020, 75% have rolled on to a permanent position within the firm that they did their trainee program. So there is a real conversion and, and it works. And we've actually just done some research, um, some research on our alumni. And, and what we've seen here is a shift in perception in terms of long-term career aspirations when we look at how they felt about their long-term career aspirations pre the trainee program and how they felt about it after the trainee program. And in particular, we see this with women. So pre-program, only 24% of, of the female alumni that were surveyed said that they would have considered a long-term career in the sector. But this rises considerably post-program to 55%, equal to the male responses. And, and what this demonstrates is that we need to be better at providing these experiences of work and entry roles that change perceptions. And, and from our alumni research, we can see that this is having a significant impact on gender balance and career aspirations of women. That's brilliant. It's great to see such positive responses. Um, so I think that's a lovely place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me.